In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today we're joined by Tia Mitchell, AJC government reporter, who spent, it seemed like three months, but you spent about three weeks with her. Yeah, about three weeks before the election day and then a couple of weeks after election day while we waited to figure out what was going to ultimately be the outcome. And we're talking about Stacey Abrams, um, spending all that time with Stacey Abrams. So you know a lot about Stacey Abrams. You know a lot about what makes her tick, uh, what drives her. And today, of course, we're talking about the big news of, of this week, which was Stacey Abrams deciding not to run for the U.S. Senate. Does that, does that surprise you at all? It doesn't surprise me because, you know, right now in the U.S. Senate, Democrats are in the minority. And that split between the House being Democrat-controlled and the Senate being Republican controlled. There's a lot of gridlock in Congress. And I could see her just looking at that as something she felt would be not the most, not the place where she could do the most good, Mm -hmm. that she could have the most impact, that could have the most action, hit the ground running type of job. That's not really what being a junior senator in the minority party would be. Exactly. And she's always kind of leaned towards the more executive roles, even though she was in the state legislature. She was also the House Minority Leader, which among legislative jobs is kind of an executive one because you're 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 charged with corralling, wrangling a really fractious caucus and getting them all lined up for 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 a common purpose um, and having to deal with all that a lot of that infighting. Right. I just don't see her, you know. She wants a role where she can do good, where she can hit the ground running, where she can have an impact. She wants to see action. And, you know, in Congress, there's not the action. And again, if you're if she were to run for the Senate, it's not a guaranteed. You know, she would have to win a statewide election just two years after a very close loss. And then if she were to win, it still would be, you know, being the low man on the totem pole, not the person who calls the shots. Well, let's talk about that. So Stacey Abrams says, um, gives a round of interviews with the AJC and says basically she's not running. She was very torn over the decision. She she gave it a lot of thought. Um, she waited for months. I mean, look, if you if you look back, she first started talking about uh, she was f- first loaded as a potential contender the moment she ended her campaign without conceding to Brian Kemp. And in January, she said she'd decide by March. In March, she decided she said she'd decide by April. In April, she said she'd decide by the end of the month. Here we are, the very deadline. Talk about uh, running up to a deadline where she makes that decision. She says, essentially, it's a great job. 
is not the job for me. You've got to, you've got to, if you want to run for office like this, you've got to really want it. And you can't just, politics isn't fungible. You can't just try to force a politician into a, a square peg um, if she's around politician. And I think also she, again, is looking for a big profile job, and that makes you a little bit more deliberate. I mean, you and me know a lot of politicians maybe on the like state and local level who really are always looking for that next elected office. And they hit a term limit here, and then they're looking, where's the next seat that I can run for? Where's the next gig? And that's not necessarily, I think, where, she, you know, she's not thinking in that way. She's thinking service. She's thinking these goals of, you know, expanding health care and voter access and census count. So in her mind, I think she's like, where can I really get in there and make some changes? And the Senate apparently is not where she saw herself. I'm with you there. I asked her the question. I said, well, most candidates seem like they've got to be talked out of running for higher office. You sounded like she, you had to be talked into it. And she said, essentially, yeah, that, that, that this was never really her game, but also she hates disappointing people. And let's talk about that because she was under a tremendous amount of pressure from Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and other national Democrats and state Democrats because Georgia is seen as a must win. Georgia has been in this Both Senate seats have been Republican controlled for pretty much the last two decades. But if Democrats want to take back the Senate, they've got to flip a handful of seats, including Georgia's. And also, you know, you don't get to give the rebuttal to the State of the Union address, you know, to to remain on the sidelines. So that was a clear indicator that they wanted to get her in the game. They wanted her to run for Senate. Um, and so I'm sure Chuck Schumer's a little disappointed this morning or probably yesterday when she called him. Um, but I think they also get it. You know, Stacey Abrams has always kind of done politics her own way. And um, it'll be interesting. She's going to run for something. We all know that. So we're just kind of waiting to see what that is. And before we talk about that, what that will be, because I've got a couple of theories, um, let's talk about Schumer. Because sh- it, the, what he was, and the details are going to come out shortly, and I'm sure they're going to come out in the Washington press. Um, but that he wasn't going to treat her like any other junior senator. That was the interesting thing. It was kind of along the same lines as Hillary Clinton in a way. I mean, he was recruiting her that heavily that. I could imagine that if she had run and won, that she might be in line for committee, senior committee roles and just more prominent placement. So when she said no, she wasn't just turning down an offer to be, you know, one of 100 senators. It was it was going to be a platform that she could have used for whatever she wants to do next. Yeah. And I do think, you know, she's indicated when she spoke to you that she wrestled with it. You know, it wasn't an easy decision. And I think that, again, if if the stars align and she can win the race and Democrats can take back the Senate, then she was in line to kind of ride, you know, the Chuck Schumer wave all the way to the top. And that would have had a lot of power and influence. Um, So it is interesting that she kind of weighed her options and ultimately decided, even if all those things fall into place, it still wasn't the right role for her at this time. What I kept on hearing about her thought process is, is, look, she wants to be president one day. She always wanted to be governor. Those both are obviously executive roles. So when she was wrestling with this sort of departure from her path, um, uh, she was always reluctant to go to the Senate route if, if, if that was the case. But she was also worried that Democrats would lose the seat because she didn't run. So I asked her if she was if she thought she would ever have second thoughts, if she if, if she ever worried, if she ever thought in the future that she just missed her moment, what that would be like. And she said pretty bluntly, no, because th- this isn't a moment. 
this isn't like running for something she always wanted to run. This is a job. And she said, what you have to do is you have to look at that job from the very worst day, the very worst day possible on the job and see if you still like it. Because if you still want to do that, right. it's the worst day, that's your gig. And that wasn't hers. Right. Especially if you think like the worst day as a, again, going back to that being in the minority party, you know, what if the Democrats also lose the House? You know, what if, you know, Chuck Schumer, whatever, loses his leadership role and your biggest ally is no longer around and you're the junior senator from Georgia? Is that where you want to spend all of your days? So I think that's what she had to wrestle with is like, what does that look like? And of course, what if she loses? Yeah. Right. I mean, what, what would that do? She has, um, even though she didn't concede, she has a loss under her belt with the, with the gubernatorial race. She had a second loss. You know, it's not a, it's not, it's not the game ender that it would have been uh, a generation ago, but it certainly would be a lot harder to come back after two statewide losses. Yeah. And I think she also has to think about like her base and all those young voters that she is energized and, you know, um, African-American voters and um, those progressives who want health care and, and um, rights for women and things like that. And like they were very disappointed. And it's hard. It's still hard for them to grasp the notion that even though Stacey lost, there is still a win in that. You know, it's hard for people to believe that because, She's not governor. And for them, that was the win they were looking for. So I think she also has to remember, like, every time she runs for something and has to energize her core, she has to think about what's the best way to harness that energy and doesn't want to waste it, maybe, or use it in a way that ultimately isn't fruitful. Yeah, to keep them energized without being disillusioned or disenchanted. Right. And, and that's where she's going next. I mean, as you mentioned, she's made it, she's made it very clear. She plans to run for political office again. Um, gubernatorial race in 2022 is most likely because, again, her famous spreadsheet that she made when she was a teenager always had – actually, at first it had mayor of Atlanta. But since she's adapted it, it had governor and then eventually White House. So this is where she sees her going, herself going one day. Um, but – Suddenly, there's some other options, uh, maybe earlier on the table than she thought, like president. Um, and I think even more likely, she'll be talked about as a vice presidential contender for whoever emerges. I think that's and I think that's so smart of her because she can become a vice president contender. And that really has little impact on her ability to run for governor in 2020 if those if that doesn't work out for her. You know, it's like the upside is she could become vice president and have a lot of sway and power. We saw, you know, Joe Biden as vice president did a lot of things in that role. But if for whatever reason that doesn't pan out, she doesn't get selected or she gets on a ticket and they don't win, she still, after 2020, can, again, use all that energy, all that exposure, and turn right around and launch a gubernatorial race. So to me, there are a lot of upsides to her kind of waiting to see how the Democratic presidential nominees settle out over the next few months. That's a great point. If she's running for Senate, she wouldn't be talked about as a VP contender or or a potential cabinet post if a Democrat uh, wins the White House. And if that doesn't happen, if she's not on a ticket, if she's not a cabinet appointee, then she'll just go back to her first love, which is running for governor right. um, against Brian Kemp, who will have one term under his belt, and he'll either he'll have to run on his record, um, and she'll and she'll having have have been able to wage a basically a shadow campaign against him for the last four years. We've seen her very forceful 
uh, on, on a number of issues. And if you look back, let's even just look back at Governor Deal. When, when Roy Barnes lost in 2010, when Jason Carter lost in 2014, kind of disappeared, right? They, they weren't playing these forceful vocal roles. They weren't the, the head of their parties. They let other people like Stacey Abrams, uh, in Jason Carter's instance, become the, w- one of the main faces of the party. In this case, she has uh, criticized his support for the heartbeat bill, for the elections overhaul bill, for not coming up with a full $5,000 teacher pay raise that, that he promised teachers. He, he, his budget only had $3,000 of that money. So she's remaining in the spotlight, too, not just on national issues, but also as a constant critic to Governor Kemp. Yeah, that's true. And I also think this also allows her, if for some reason, you know, there are like 20 right now Democrats running for president, if they can't coalesce around someone, if they can't pick a front runner, you know, all of a sudden people say, well, there's this lady in Georgia Draft named Stacey Abrams. Abrams, you know? So I think that's also a way for her to kind of, you know, she's staying she's staying out in the forefront, but also it's kind of like this gives buys her more time. In the short term, though, this gives Democrats, national Democrats, a giant headache because Stacey Abrams had the fundraising ability, she had the apparatus, she had name recognition, she had a campaign in waiting essentially over at Fair Fight Action. A lot of her former campaign staffers, including her her, her manager, Lauren Grow-Wargo, now work there. Um, she, now that she's off the board, Democrats have to go with a, a far lower profile candidate. And there's, and there's a, several of them who are looking at the race. We already know that former Columbus Mayor Teresa Tomlinson has filed paperwork to run. She plans to formally launch her campaign this week. So she's she's in the race, but her name recognition is minuscule. She has very little base outside of Columbus. She's got some work to do. Now, the, the counterpoint of that is Stacey Abrams was kind of unknown outside of Atlanta right. just a few years ago, and now yeah. she's a national political celebrity in a way, um, but still speaks to how, how far Democrats have to go. And Teresa Tomlinson, she's coming right out the gate talking about Washington dysfunction. Yeah. Can you – I'm curious because – to me, Sarah Amico, I've seen her mentioned mm-hmm. as a possible candidate. Do you have any insight as to whether it's something she's really considering it? Is it just her names being put out there? Yeah, so we mentioned Teresa Thomason because she's already filed paperwork, but there's several other candidates who are likely to, to, to jump in, and one of them is Sarah Riggs Amico. She was the runner-up for lieutenant governor last year. I was at a town hall meeting with her the night before um, Stacey Abrams made formal her decision. Um, just to, I wanted to hear her back on the campaign trail because it had been a, well, not too long, but it had been a few months since I had heard her on the campaign trail. Um, she said she's very seriously considering running a race. Um, she's not expected to announce imminently. Um, but she said she, if she were to run, she wants to bring back what she, she wants to finish the work she said that her and Stacey Abrams um, started which is bringing what she called a touch of hope to voters, giving them a reason to vote for something rather than just talking about voting against something. Um, she's made her message about uh, abortion rights, about expanding Medicaid, about um, what they what Democrats call common sense gun, gun measures, restrictions on some firearms, things that you didn't hear Democrats talk about as much. Um, and also trying to knit together the coalition of progressives in the city of Atlanta and and other you know more moderate suburbanites and and even trying to reach into rural Georgia, she is a, a businesswoman. She's a the executive chair of her family's trucking and logistics company. So she brings a little private sector to that, and and she'll probably um, use the line. I don't know how 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 forcefully she'll attack. 
Tomlin's not out the gate, but uh, she she'll she'll constantly remind people that she's not a quote unquote career politician. What about John Ossoff? I feel like when I was on, you know, covering Stacey Abrams, he was always kind of like in the periphery. You know, he's he's around, he's been around, but he hasn't run for anything since his failed congressional bid. Do you think he's considering? Yes, he. Um, so John Ossoff lost that 2017 special election to Karen Handel, but a lot of Democrats credit him with paving the way, especially in the, in, in the North Atlanta suburbs, for someone like Lucy McBath, who who ended up beating Handel in 18, uh, paving a way for her victory. He's very much out there. He's held town hall meetings far outside his suburban base. He's He's gone to northeast Georgia. I was with him recently there. He had a town hall meeting in the city of Atlanta the other day that, that attracted a few hundred people. He's talking a much more populist message than he did in 17. He's talking about student debt and ending climate change and uh, making higher education free and decriminalizing and legalizing recreational marijuana. Things that did not come up really in, in the 6th District race not that so long ago. But the challenge for him, look, we all know his fundraising promise. He raised $30 million wow. in the record-setting $60 million special election in 17. So we know he can raise money. We know he can, he can, he can put together that campaign apparatus that you'll need to win a, a big race like this that will get national attention. And he can stand the national attention because he got plenty of it when, when that race was like the only one. Right. But is now the moment for a privileged... 31-year-old white male to be running in a Democratic Party that in the presidential race is boasting the most diverse field we've ever seen. Yeah, I think I think that's always in the back of his mind, and especially in this climate with the Democratic Party. I do think there's a little bit different calculus because this is a presidential year. And so the electorate is going to look different you know, in a presidential year than it did like with the gubernatorial race mm-hmm. in an off year. So I don't I, I don't know enough to know how that changes the calculus. I mean, for the Democratic Party in a primary, I think that'll be tough for him. But, you know, then always the argument goes, but would that help in a general election? Um, but he would have to get through a get primary. Through a, a really yeah. tough primary with, with it looks like at least two well-known women uh, but who knows? And then there's also Michelle Nunn's name is out there. We, we've had a few big names say they're not running. Jen Jordan, the state senator from Atlanta, said she's not running. Earlier on, Sally Yates, the former uh, acting attorney general of the, of the United States of America, um, said she's not running. But but uh, Michelle Nunn, I've heard from some of her allies who were trying to get her to run. She, was, of course, lost that 2014 race to David Perdue. She ran as a centrist back then. And if she were to run again... She would have to answer to a lot of Democrats who, yeah. are, who are much more liberal now. That would be tough in a primary. It would be real tough. So, so there's no easy path for any of them. And then, of course, the other big question is all the names we've talked about are all white Democrats. The Democratic electorate is majority African-American and black women particularly. They, they're the biggest single block in the Democratic electorate. So to see a Democratic race for, for a statewide office now without an African-American um, contender would be very unusual. Is there anyone, I mean, any African American with the kind of a the type of profile that you think might try to get in the race? There's a lot of talk about Reverend Raphael Warnock, who is the, the, the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, Martin Luther King Jr.'s spiritual home. He was flirting with a race against Johnny Isaacson um, in 2016 and decided against it. What we're hearing is that he's not He's not really in this race because he has a newborn. He's got a lot of 
duties on the pulpit. You've got to really, you know, yeah. be willing to give up your next year and a half plus. Right. However many plus and six years. Politics is a way different career than, you know, being a religious leader. And there's a lot of overlap, but there's a lot, you know, do you want to go from preparing sermons every week to making dozens of calls begging for money? You know, I think that's probably a lot of the calculus for someone who has such a different career path. To pivot to politics, you have to think about all the behind the scenes work that um, might not be the most appealing. Mm -hmm. And then there's a bench behind those candidates we just mentioned. Um, there are rising stars like State Senator Nakima Williams. I don't even think she's a rising star. She's already a star. She's the chairwoman of the Democratic Party of Georgia <clears throat> um, and a state senator with a prominent platform. Um, she'll run for higher office at some point. Erica Thomas over in the state house. Um, Darshan Kendrick at the state house. Both of them have leadership roles already. So these are people, these are candidates, African-American politicians who already have really prominent platforms, but is 2020 too soon, right? Yeah, it sounds like for a lot of those people you mentioned, 2020 is too soon. And it's indicative of the complaint that people have had about the Democratic Party is that unlike the Republican Party, they did not work on building their bench over the last, you know, five, 10 mm -hmm. years. So that pipeline, you know, there are a lot of young Democrats, young progressives, but is anyone quote unquote ready? The other side of that coin is, We've seen people who weren't, quote, unquote, ready or in the pipeline go to the highest yeah. office in the nation. So anything can happen. Yeah. And that's a really good point about the Democratic pipeline, because for the longest time, it was Republicans who had the really crowded primaries. If you look at the Senate race in 2014, there was like five or six credible Republican candidates running. Uh, and David Perdue emerged. Same thing with the governor's race last year. Four or five, you know, uh, state elected or credible Republican candidates. Usually Democrats have a, have a much kind of smoother path. There's, there's In Jason Carter's case, he was the only Democratic candidate running. Wow. In other cases, like Michelle Nunn, she went against like basically token opposition. Uh, last year was the first year we, we in a while that we really had uh, some heated primaries, including um, the governor's race. And this year, as we, as we can already tell, it will not be a, a smooth ride for whoever the Democratic nominee is. They're going to have a fight. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see how that, like you said, you know, do they come out swinging against each other? Are they all talking the same thing, theoretically? So then it becomes down to, like, character and identity and things like that. I think it'll be really, really interesting to see this Democratic primary, particularly without Stacey Abrams as a clear front front runner. Yep, she would have cleared the field uh, without, without a doubt. And, and to kind of bring it back full circle also, what role she will play. We know she's going to be neutral, at least in the start. She's not going to pick sides in this race. Um, we also know that some of her allies have are, are gravitating towards Amico. They're 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 being signed on as consultants in case Amico runs. She hasn't filed any paperwork yet, but but there are some former Abrams loyalists who have already kind of gravitated towards Amico. Um, but whatever role she plays, because look, if she is running for for vice president or, or president or what have you, um, she'll she'll have less time to advocate for whoever the Democratic nominee is. So it'll be really interesting as this evolves to see what role she plays, especially as she's courting, she's still courting every presidential candidate. Actually, I should say they're courting her. <laughs> every presidential candidate who comes to Georgia is meeting with her. She asked them two questions. What is their plan to combat voter suppression? 
And what is their plan to win Georgia? Yeah. And I think it's also interesting, though, because if she does end on a ticket, end up on a ticket or even, you know, aligning herself with the candidate or, you know, becoming that that big supporter of the Democratic ticket and in line for a cabinet position, that just puts Georgia on the map more which would therefore help whoever becomes the Democratic nominee, because that means they're on stage with the presidential nominee. And and as the presidential nominee kind of circles the state, so will whoever that Senate nominee is. And Stacey Abrams will be there, you know, cheering for them both, or they're campaigning with them both. Battleground Georgia. Tia, this is it was great for you to join us today. Thank We're going to have a lot to write about over the next couple of years, aren't we? I'm excited. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny one film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.